Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I am really excited to have a repeat performer, repeat guest in the form of Bill Hennessy, CEO of Prater today. Uh, before we get started, as always, uh, if you like this content, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, we really like your support and we appreciate it. And we think these are important topics to uh, allow to unfold in the in a full-length version. So hope you can do that for us. Um, today, we're going to have a little bit of an interesting conversation. And historically, we've talked about some really interesting things around pricing transparency, the unwillingness of systems to comply with uh, legal obligations to create pricing transparency. We've also talked about protocol transparency and other business models. But what we've never talked about, and I don't know that anybody else ever, anywhere in all of media, in all of podcast history has ever talked about what you don't have to pay for. And so I've asked Bill Hennessy to come back and uh, tell us a little bit about the not one, the not two, the not three, but four, count them, 4,000 financial assistance programs that Bill has already read stem to stern that tell you what you do not have to pay for or that somebody else will pay for you. So, Bill, welcome. Thank you so much for coming today. Well, thanks for having me again. And as always, happy Prater Day. <laughs> happy Prater Day to you, too. So, Bill, we've talked about pricing transparency, and you gave us a great education around the difference between revenue codes and CPT codes and you know how there was all sorts of uh, nefarious stuff going on with payment and and billing. Um, you've done a lot of homework since last we spoke, uh, and this is all around the financial assistance program. Tell us, first of all, what is a financial system program? What kind of hospitals have them? And why do we care? Well, the Affordable Care Act in March of uh, 2010 required the IRS 501R obligation. That means if you are a nonprofit hospital. Any of approximately 3,000 hospitals are nonprofit. You must provide charity care. These approximate 3,000 hospitals benefit by over 30 billion, that's with a B, dollars per year for their nonprofit tax status. And the majority of those are, by regular business standards, the most profitable hospitals. So the least we think they should do is give four or five billion of that care actually back to the poor in their community. So we're here to help those hospitals honor and fulfill their nonprofit obligation to better serve the members of their community. Todd. So you're here to you're here to help the nonprofits honor their legal obligations in the noble quest of providing care to those who need it. Uh, yes, uh, you know, you can take the uh, Kleenex to the tear of the corner of your eye now, Todd, if you so wish. But you did notice also a thousand discrepancies. So I said 3,000, you said 4,000, but I've mentioned 4,000 you before. The other thousand, there are for profit hospitals that also have financial assistance policies. 
These FAPs or financial assistance policies aren't legally required as they are for nonprofits, but some of these for-profits actually have very good ones. So we're going to have financial assistance policies on this software platform for roughly 4,000 of 5,700 hospitals in the country. So just to be clear, the largest for-profit system is HCA. They've done very well for a long period of time. They do a lot of good in a lot of communities. Uh, And we have the largest not-for-profit hospital system in the form of Ascension, which also does a lot of good in a lot of communities. Very, very different business models, very different structures. Um, And I can imagine very different financial assistance policies. So tell us a little about what you're seeing in in any similarities or dissimilarities with regard to each of the categories of the 3,000 versus 1,000. Well, if you would go ahead and take your fingernails and go down a chalkboard, it would be a lot less painful for me than reading these 10 to 30 page financial assistance policies for 4,000 hospitals. With that said, I can tell you Ascension has one of the best in the country. Um, So they actually do practice what they uh, preach. We could talk about what that means in terms of monies and who gets the the, the, uh, charity care. Uh, HCA uh, also has a presence in your dear state of Texas, and uh, they they actually do have a policy too. Now, uh, not so nice. A tenant does not have a policy, and that's where they're headquartered down there. So uh, we um, do note that the United States Department of Health and Human Services, we call that HHS for short, sets the federal poverty guidelines. At hospitalbilleraser.com, we don't like to say say the term poverty uh, because uh, people work hard for their money. And I don't want to refer to that as poverty or insult anyone when they're making fifty or $60,000 and working very hard for it. And I appreciate their efforts. Uh, it's based on two things. One, household income. Uh, two, your number of household members, typically by IRS standards. Are you a dependent or not? And so for a family of four, or less in income is 200% of the federal poverty level. And at 200% or less, at the majority of these 3,000 nonprofit hospitals, it's charity care. So that means nearly one in four, or about 80 million people, are entitled to charity care, but they don't know it. So just to be clear, this may or may not overlap with Medicaid, right? Now you're talking, Todd. All right. So $53,000 is the national annual household income average by many different sources. And it is. That means half the country's underneath that. So if we have 330 million Americans, we have 165 million that make less than 53000 Now, last check, my statistic is 74 million of those. We can round up in our heads to ballpark 80 million are on Medicaid. In fact, for this financial assistance policies, the number one rule they have is if you don't qualify for Medicaid, then we'll consider you for charity care. Let's translate that. We as 3,000 nonprofit hospitals would like to double dip. If we can turf you off onto Medicaid, get paid, and still write it off as charity care, we're happy to do so. 
But that still leaves the other half, that other approximate 80 million, they're still eligible. So what would, what would be an example of somebody who doesn't qualify for Medicaid, but is in the income strata you just described? So uh, I actually have, I call that the wickets. I can give you just a, an example or two. And I found it to be similar. Uh, I've done it in both uh, Pennsylvania and in uh, Florida for uh, a few reasons. So the wickets are, you make too much for Medicaid, but you make too little for an overpriced uh, carrier plan. And you say, well, how wide are those wickets? Uh, they're, they're significant. So let's take a family of two. If you make more than about $23,000, you're too rich for Medicaid. But you, if you make less than $30, you're eligible for charity care. So you got twenty-three to 35000 for a family of four, if you make more than $35,000, you are too rich for Medicaid. But you make less than $53,000 in that range, you're entitled to charity care. So it's, it's a pretty wide set of wickets that affects the households. So what you're saying is actually you can be outside the strata and, and still qualify and there's plenty of room for people to fall into that uh, position outside the strata. So let's imagine now you say, hey, I'm gonna, I, I wanna get, see if I qualify. When do you do that? Do you go in advance of going to the hospital or do you do it after you've seen the doctor? It has to be after hospital care occurred. Most hospitals have a minimum of $1,500 to qualify. They're not going to let you get a, just a doctor visit or a cholesterol level. They don't want an application being filled out for every nickel and dime. Some go as low as $500. But they have a, a, a you got it by the ball strategy, if I can say that. I think I just did, where you have to get the care first and then fill out the application. So we can read the application, know what the application says, and, and, and attorney Todd can say, I know that should be charity care, but they're not going to guarantee that in advance. They're going to make you get the care and complete the application. So the challenge with that is, or let me at least test my thesis here. In a lot of instances, you go to the hospital and they say, can you show me your insurance card? Or are you paying this yourself? And if you're paying for it yourself, then show me your credit card. Uh, how do you get past that stage of the, of the in induction process? Well, you, if you do have insurance, they will take what your insurance pays. There are specific FAP clauses that define underinsured. Most will cover underinsured, not all do. Most will. Underinsured can mean coinsurance or deductible or your claim is denied and you are out of network. That can be viewed as underinsured for the insurance policy you have, or that can be viewed as uninsured. There could be a lot of friendly legal debate in these, Todd. Um, so, you know, you, 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 uh, you just can't get around getting the care first, but upon admission, if you qualify for Medicaid, 
the hospitals, most of them are pretty sophisticated about signing you up on the spot to make sure they get paid something. So I go in, I get the care. Uh, I then come out and I apply for the assistance under the FAP. Uh, how long does it take to get resolved? Well, usually within one month, they will provide you a yes or no answer. Uh, the, the beautiful thing is, is this can go back 240 days wow. from the time that you received your first bill. It usually takes you a month, month to receive your first bill. So, so uh, for anybody listening, if they had someone uh, not uh, you know, financially advantageous, they were under that 53000 for a family of four, you could go back about nine months and still apply. Also, as long as a person is applying for financial assistance, he or she cannot be uh, pursued for collections because you have made a, quote, good faith, quote, effort at resolving the financial matter and your obligation. So I want to make sure that, I, that we've defined our terms correctly. You said earlier you were referring to household income. Correct. Okay, so let me just play a little game here. Let's imagine that uh, a fairly affluent person um, doesn't have any income, that they live based on the sale of assets from time to time. And so that even though they don't have income, they have cash from other sources that comes as a result of capital gains or dividends or something else that doesn't qualify as income in the tax sense. What happens then? Hey, all 5,700 hospitals, Todd, love to drain your bank account. Okay, so they're going to find your bank account. It's common in these FAPs to have a 600% to 800% of the federal poverty level as a cap. So if for a family of four, we round it off and say uh, it's 50,000, you might have 300 to 400,000. If you have, uh, you know, more than that put away for your, uh, in different bank accounts, non-retirement bank accounts or investment uh, vehicles, they're going to say, give it to us. We'll drain that. So what's interesting is uh, there's a very, very affluent investor uh, on the West Coast, who got a lot of notoriety in the last couple of weeks because he was uh, making all of his investments through his IRA and had amassed a fortune measured in billions of dollars in his IRA. So he had no discernible income per se, as the tax code defines it, but at the same time, had a, an enormously healthy balance in his IRA, he may have had a healthy balance in other accounts too, but let's assume for the moment that he didn't. What happens then? You know, if, if it's all in retirement, most of these FAPs, financial assistance policies, that's not considered, you don't touch that. You know, just, just like you can't in other legal proceedings, but if it's in a non-retirement account, it's going to be considered as a part of assets there's income is one set of wickets, income and family members, but another set of wickets to go through to qualify is the uh, your assets. 
And if they, they are non-retirement in total more than six to 800% of the federal poverty level, you're, you're going to be, uh, you're not going to qualify. Very good. So there, what I- there, there is one where some wealthy people can qualify though under this, and that's the uh, uh, catastrophic. So these hospitals have anywhere from 10, 20, up to 30%. If your bill is more than that much of your annual household income. So if you made $200,000 and you had a $50,000 bill, uh, but that catastrophic clause was 20%, well, that's more than the $40,000 uh, that would have meant that your, your, your bill is actually above that. And if you had a 20% co-insurance, that situation can happen on some inpatient bills. So you could still be uh, making good money and qualify under catastrophic coverage. So I wanted to simply exhaust the argument to make sure that you know people knew that we weren't trying to play hide the ball, that in fact, this was designed to help those who are uh, in a lower economic, uh, socioeconomic stratus, strata, if you will. And therefore, that it, these programs are in fact to deploy money to say to, to help people who, who need the help. And that's really where it's targeted. And you're a little bit hard pressed to uh, abuse the FAP. Let's just start there. I mean, it's possible like anything, but that's not the goal and it's not the intent. So it seems to me that what you're describing is a little bit like, uh, because of the, the $1,200 number um, as a floor uh, to, to the benefit, it seems like it's almost like a quasi-major medical protection. Is that fair to draw that analogy? It is. I, uh, I actually do draw that analogy myself. It's, uh, you can't say it's insurance, but it's like you have insurance. You could get the, uh, the free hospital care. You say, why isn't this advertised? Well, answer is follow the money. Guess who puts uh, all the uh, media on a radio and TV? The hospitals. So you think they'd ever run something that would be adversarial to their number one moneymaker? Just look at TV, hospitals, insurance companies, and pharma, throwing alcohol in cars. That's all. The, those are the only five types of commercials that exist. You're not going to see it. You got to keep the people to keep your lights on happy. Well, or or put differently, you know, they want to they want to encourage their primary business model and they want to support people if they need it, but only if they need it. True. Uh, so you don't want to advertise something if it's not needed. And you only want to make it available if it is needed. So I, I certainly understand that. Um, so you have developed, uh, again, a treasure trove of information around these, this topic. Uh, and how do people come to understand this? What, you know, what can people do to tap into the, to the pool? Let's imagine that I'm, you know, uh, I'm an old guy in uh, Dallas, as I am. And uh, I want to see if I qualify. How would I access that from to you? Well, first of all, Todd, as uh, as a physician, I'm referring to you as middle aged. Uh, <laughs> so secondly, uh, we have a 30 second uh, worksheet at hospitalbillyracer.com. Now, it is for our members, which are currently businesses. We don't have B 2 C business to consumer yet. There's four inputs: your household income number of family members, the name of your hospital, 
and the dollar amount that you owe at that hospital, hit submit. We'll tell you what that real number is. There's a calculation that goes on the back. So most of these from zero to 200% of the federal poverty level, it is free care. So the number will pop up, you owe zero dollars. It'll have the financial assistance application right there and the financial assistance counselor phone number of that hospital right there. We make it convenient. It's hidden within the hospital websites, very hidden. Uh, and the second part is, is many have a sliding scale coverage from 201 to 400% of the federal poverty level. So for a family of four, that's out to $106,000. Some are generous and it's still 50 to 100%. Others say, well, we're gonna stop at 250. Others are, well, we give a 50% discount out to 300%. Is it worth Todd's time to fill out the application for two or three hours or four hours or not? Well, the 30 second worksheet is gonna give you that answer. And so now, now we know if it's worth going to save thousands of dollars, if it's thousands, the answer is yes. So that's very helpful. I, I would encourage you to make this available to consumers where they can pay a $5 or $10 or $100, whatever the number is, uh, report fee so they can get the answer. Uh, that'd be very helpful, I can imagine, to, to many people. But I also encourage those who are in the audience who are business owners just to take a look at this and see if they can make this available to their employees, particularly those who are frontline workers and, and uh, lower income earners who might tremendously benefit from this. Uh, because I think the, the overarching remark, and you and I have shared this conversation many times, the, the vast majority of people never hit their deductible, something like 80% of Americans never hit their deductible. So what in essence is occurring is they're paying the most possible for healthcare by having a combination of a deductible and an insurance co cost. And it only gets worse if you have, uh, well, it doesn't get worse that way. The idea is that you're, you're going to pay for your healthcare, a lot of your care, particularly standard care, uh, labs, images, primary care, meds, you're paying for a lot of that yourself out of your own pocket and until you get to your deductible. And the goal ought not to be to get to your deductible. The goal ought to be to figure out a way to be more consumer-like in your behavior, uh, which is where you know we talked last time about other attributes of Pratter and the offerings you have in MoneyMap and, and, and the like, where you can actually find out where you can find a, a provider of services that are lower priced uh, and therefore, you have to come out of pocket with less money than you might otherwise. So uh, it seems to me that the combination of these two offerings is very powerful. Uh, so I commend you on that. But the, the idea of having, you know, money map on the one side and then hospital bill eraser on the other side is a real one-two punch for really, really taking a big whack to your, your healthcare costs. Am I, am I mistaken there? Uh, no, I, you're absolutely correct. Uh, money map for those just tuning into this episode would be a Google map with Google pins for the best price blood work, imaging and surgery center care, meaning affordable access to routine care. And then hospital bill erasers for your expensive care, which now comes in three flavors, inpatient hospitalization, cancer care, and also uh, emergency room visits. So 
Yes, you're right. Routine care and expensive care. The yin and the yang. Very good. And so the other thing that I want to point out is that on on the front end of that, for those who are CEOs or senior executives in their companies watching this, the important takeaway there is you don't have to change your TPA. You don't have to change your network. You don't have to change your care provider or your insurance carrier. You can, and yet you can still create for yourself tremendous savings by simply going to the service providers in network, in geography for a lower price. That's correct. We don't require any legal change to the health plan document. We can just be layered in on top. Yes. We're a cherry on top. So let me ask you this. On it, I, I can easily see how the front end is very good for the industry, meaning you, the consumerism behavior drives price and cost down for everybody. That's good for the industry. It's good for patients. It's good for the economy. It's good for government because it drives down the percentage of total GDP that our healthcare industry comprises. It allows us to reallocate dollars to other higher, more important needs, uh, even in the healthcare industry, quite honestly. Um, but is the financial assistance program good for the healthcare industry? Well, it's good for society, as you said, because if you spend less as an employer, you can invest more back into your company for growth. Uh, you also would have uh, a lot less than those million new households every single year that file for medical bankruptcy. And again, I'm not feeling too sorry for these hospitals when they benefit $32 billion a year. Again, if they gave back only four or five billion of that in the charity care, uh, the price is right for that nonprofit tax status. They should do it. They're not doing it. Um, I, I even saw one that I looked at the IRS form uh, that it gave away on its IRS document required 13000 for the whole year in charity care was documented. So if you bury these uh, financial assistance policies eight, eight or nine clicks deep in a Times New Roman size 0.5 font, and, uh, and you make them 30 pages long, uh, people don't know they exist. So it also should be noted that a lot of times these financial aid or financial assistance policies uh, are funded through charity and philanthropy that may or may not be inside the hospital. Is that correct? Well, you're talking to a guy whose uh, father was a foundation director of one or two hospitals for almost 50 years. He was the fundraiser guy for community hospitals, the ones that in general are better priced or AKA Pratterlicious <laughs> uh, if you need to be hospitalized. But, uh, you know, usually the fundraisers hospital have are to accomplish certain specific growth needs of a new ICU unit or a new pediatric uh, hospital uh, or, or a cancer something or other. They set very specific purposes for the monies. That's the way donors give money. You give this money, you get to say you did that. Uh, it, I never heard that had, had dad tell me that, uh, uh, that, that there was any relation of the fundraising to go specifically to the charity care. Okay, so it's just coming out of the, uh, the revenues and the proceeds of the hospital itself 
not coming out of a foundation or some other philanthropic organization. That, that's correct. And this must be published line itemized on their tax return. Very good. Well, this is very helpful because I think, like I said, the most of the industry discussion is really wrapped around the idea of what you do have to pay. And very rarely does uh, somebody come out and say, hey, here's what you don't have to pay. And here's who qualifies for not having to pay. And by the way, this can really apply not only to uh, the, uh, the, the unemployed, it also can apply to the those who are employed but are low, you know, lower income wage earners, and the companies can help their employees uh, in this way by directing them to this kind of resource. Yes, it's that I call it the donut, especially those that are between twenty to sixty thousand dollars in annual salaries. Uh, this could be a, a tremendous asset to them, where they can have access to affordable care that they otherwise did not know about. And, and it would be advantageous to preemptively strike and to understand which of the hospitals around you has the best deal. Lord forbid you need hospitalized. Uh, one hospital might get you charity care and the other one might just get you a big bill. Well, and I would imagine that, that what you've done here with the, this offering is really, really helpful to CEOs, CFOs and uh, human resources executives who probably don't have the time or the bandwidth to, to go figure this out for themselves. And so it really becomes a, a very low cost, meaning they have to subscribe to your service, but it becomes otherwise a very low cost way of accessing uh, funding for stuff that they don't may, they may not have otherwise covered. Yes. Let's look at the two, uh, reasons, the two R's as to why employers offer health care, but not auto or, or life. Employee recruitment and retention. So for a very, very nominal fee here, we can go ahead, we could even geocode a census and tell them you got 50, 60, 80% of your employees will qualify for free or discount, discounted care and know that ahead of time. We have one Florida county where the average uh, employee makes about 35 grand. We have a, a potato farm in Pennsylvania, middle rural PA, that has a lot of pickers that, that uh, uh, don't make that much uh, and work hard, where uh, the hospitality racer takes the worry out of, boy, we got somebody to walk us through the steps of getting the charity care. And uh, we know which hospitals to consider using more often now that we have this piece of information. Well, and I want to underscore the value of that and how important it is, especially right now when obtaining talent is so difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, in essence, it becomes a, a very low cost uh, benefit that you're able to add to your employees base and bonus or, or at least income. And uh and then you're off to the races. But uh, right now, we're really struggling as a nation, and the nation's employers are really struggling to, to recruit and retain employees. So that's a, a vital element of, of one of the problems that the nation's facing. Yeah, so Hospital Billy Racer is all about the employee. Yep, yep. The only benefit to the employer isn't going to be so much monetary. It's going to be, it's a true employee benefit. We care about you. On the other hand, money map, where to go to get routine care, that can affect the employer and employee 
and they both save money on that platform. Yes. So um, this has been really, really helpful, Bill. Thank you so much for uh, coming on, on the podcast and then sharing this. I can't wait to get this out and I, I'll be really intrigued to see how many people pick up on it. Um, I'm going to encourage people to reach out in the comment section and offer your thoughts on it. And then also we'll provide a link below access to uh, Pratter's website and all of the uh, ways you can get engaged with Bill and his company. Uh, he's done some really amazing work. I'm really pleased to see what he's done. And it's every time I talk to Bill, uh, every time I talk to you, Bill, I, I get more and more fascinated and uh, I'm just deeply grateful for the work you're doing. Well, thanks. I appreciate your uh, friendship and passion also on our journey to help millions save billions. <laughs> Happy Prater Day. Thank you so much, Bill. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.